Let's give him praise one more time like he's worthy. Let's just bless his name. We love you, Lord, and we're thankful for that rugged cross on Calvary where your precious blood was shed for us. And tonight we recognize that we can come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need because of the blood that was shed for us that day. And may we be forever grateful for the power of the gospel in our lives. And Lord, today as we approach your word, make ready the hearts of men to receive the word of truth. May my life be forever hidden behind the message of the cross. Touch every heart and every life. Mold us and shape us like the potter shapes the clay. We submit ourselves to you and every distraction that's weighing heavy on our mind. Right now, we lay it at your feet to give you our undivided focus and attention. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, on your way to your seat, why don't you high five your neighbor and tell them they're looking good. High five them like you mean it. Tell them they're looking good. Y'all are definitely saying more than that, but I'm fine with it. <laughs> so uh, real quick, just want to say a uh, very special thank you to Pastor Taylor uh, for this incredible church. Can we give some appreciation to your pastor? We love you, my friend. Appreciate you. Um, it's been so encouraging to watch you and this church, this ministry unfold from afar. And it's an honor to be here with you in person today. Uh, to God be the glory for what he's doing in Beaufort, South Carolina. And may this just be the very beginning of the work that he's doing. I'm telling you, God is moving in the world today. I know it's dark and I know it's a wicked world, but churches that are preaching the gospel and churches that are submitted to the word of God, they're flourishing, they're thriving. The Lord is drawing people to himself. And this certainly is one of those great places. Uh, it's also exciting for me to be here tonight because I actually grew up as a child visiting my grandparents on Fripp Island, South Carolina. Anybody from Fripp Island today? Or you've been like three? Okay, no one. All right. But you've been there. You've been there. All right. I know they got a gate at the front. All right. Uh, but I grew up there. You know, my childhood, some of my fondest memories were of the low country of South Carolina. And so this is near and dear to my heart. And uh, it's an honor to be with you. If you have your Bible, we're going to jump in today. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. While you're turning there, I want to encourage you to take notes uh, because I'm going to be moving pretty quickly and throwing a lot at you. Uh, you might want to take notes just in case something I happen to say today is important, all right? And uh, you will look smarter if you take notes. I'll feel better about it. You'll feel better about it. And uh, just want to encourage you with that. Um, how many of you know the Bible is under attack today? You know it's under attack. We got critics, naysayers, the young people would call them haters uh, of the scripture. Uh, well, I just want you to know that heaven and earth will pass away, but the word is going to remain forever. It's going to remain forever. This is not just any book we hold in our hand. This is the word of the living God. And over the next few moments tonight, uh, by God's grace, I'm going to talk to you about reasons to believe in the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, the repro for reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that this word is inspired. It is literally God breathed, given to us from heaven for revelation and understanding, equipping us to be the people God has called us to be. The first thing I want you to take note of is the Bible is a miracle. And if you would help me preach and tell your neighbor, the Bible is a miracle. I like that. Y'all are not bashful. I like that. I like this. This is a a great church. All right. The Bible's a miracle. By the way, when you hold that Bible in your hand, you're not holding a book. You're holding a library. 66 books written by 40 different authors in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, on three different continents spanning 1,800 years, written by shepherds, fishermen, tax collectors, and kings, yet they all write in perfect harmony and unison God's plan to save and redeem the world through his precious son, Jesus Christ. If you can get 40 people to agree on anything, how many of you know that is a miracle? All right, it's a miracle, especially today. We're offended and divided, uh, sadly, more than ever before, but the truth is the composition of the Bible Though it is God-inspired, it is also a profound miracle. I know the Bible from the outward perspective can seem a little bit complex, but really it is a simple book, and really it's about one message. It's about one overarching message through and through from Genesis all the way to Revelation. It is about God's plan to save the world through his son, Jesus Christ. You can see the gospel literally in the first three verses of Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, all the way. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The New Testament points back to Jesus. The whole Bible hinges on one story and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pastor some young people, the median age at my church is 30 years old, and some of them try to tell me, Pastor Taylor, that the Old Testament is boring. I say, well, you might just be boring, you know, that the Bible isn't, all right? But no, you know why? Sometimes we don't really know how to unlock the Old Testament. Sometimes we don't really know how to apply those stories and those accounts into our life today. Well, just one tool that will help you unlock the Old Testament is look for Jesus. He's in every story. He's in every chapter. He's in every book. If you're having a hard time understanding what is this Old Testament story really about, let me tell you, it's about Jesus. He's the key that unlocks it. And once you discover who Jesus is, then you can find your rightful place. But the Bible itself is a miracle. Not only was the inspiration of the Bible miraculous, but its preservation also is miraculous. Do you realize that today we have over 25,000 manuscripts surviving today of the Word of God? Manuscripts are ancient copies of historic texts, and there is no other ancient book in the world that even comes anywhere close to the manuscripts that we have of our scripture, the Holy Bible that we hold in our hands today. The New Testament has been preserved more than any other ancient work. The next closest ancient work that's been preserved is Homer's Iliad, and it only has a thousand manuscripts surviving today. Yet no one is questioning the validity of Homer's Iliad. 
But we have more than 20 times the manuscripts that back up that the word we hold in our hand today is, is the word that was written millennia ago. Part just to help make this make a little bit more sense, because it's easy to just throw out stats, 25,000 manuscripts survive. The reason that's so important is because manuscripts were ancient copies of the original text. And over time, scripture and paper deteriorates. And so the first manuscript might have uh, the first chapter or the first page intact, but it might be missing some stuff in pages two and three and so forth. But the good news is for the scripture, we have over 20,000. So where one is lacking, we can pull the other to not only authenticate it, but to fill in the missing pieces. That's why 25,000 manuscripts is such a big deal because today we know with certainty, not only did God inspire the text, but through his Holy Spirit, he also preserved it. We don't just have faith in his breathed word. We have faith that he preserved it. A God big enough to speak it is a God big enough to keep it today. One of the great lies that people say is, well, you know, it's changed over time. You know, it can't really be trusted. Well, we actually have 25,000 manuscripts that would say otherwise. All right. It is a miracle what we have. Also realize this. In 1946, um, in the caves of Qumran, Along the Dead Sea, a shepherd boy discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, where over 900 ancient documents were recovered from this cave. Over one-third of those documents were copies of the Old Testament, some of them capturing the entire book of Isaiah with meticulous precision. After careful analysis of these Dead Sea Scrolls, Historians, scientists alike were astounded because these scrolls dated all the way back from 300 to 100 BC, meaning that they could be traced back to a close proximity of its initial authorship. This is profound, church. It is absolutely profound. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, they predated any other manuscripts we had by 1,000 years. And what they discovered when they paired the Dead Sea Scrolls with the scriptures we held then is that it was preserved by the power of God, not a story lost, not a concept misconstrued. It is an absolute and profound miracle. Anybody believe the Bible's a miracle today? Can I get a witness of somebody who believes it today? It's a miracle. You don't have a lot of people say, well, you know, I would believe in the Bible, but man wrote it. Okay, well, you believe everything else man wrote. I see you on Twitter. I see you on Facebook. <laughs> the Charlotte Observer, you know, you can believe everything. You, you know, it's amazing how we believe the textbooks and we have absolutely no problem because they were written by men. But let me tell you something. I'm not against education. I'm not against science. I'm not against any of that. But I do want to let you know that your textbook, no matter how great it is, it's going to be outdated in about three to seven years. That's why we got version 4.0, 17.0. But while they've been changing and updating the text, our scripture remains constant. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so is his word. He got it right the first time. <laughs> I just had fun with that. Do you realize that the majority of the New Testament was written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ? 
I'll say that again for everybody in the back. Do you realize that the majority of the New Testament was written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Christ? The seven letters of the Apostle Paul were all from the 50s AD, within 20 years of the events actually happening. The first gospels, the first gospel is Mark, written around 70 AD, again, dating back to 40 years within the actual events unfolding. Matthew 80 AD, John 90, Luke 85. The accuracy of an ancient text is often linked to its proximity to the actual events. History holds no book like the Bible. It's a miracle that we hold in our hand. The next major point I want to talk to you about is the Bible, it's not only a miracle, it's not only been preserved by the Holy Spirit, but the third point is the Bible is actually scientifically reliable. That's right. That's right. Some people get nervous in here right now. You're like, I don't know about this preacher. Well, hey, good news, the real preacher will be back on Sunday. All right, so if you don't like me, you, hey, you're just visiting. Hey, don't judge him, all right? He's going to be back on Sunday. But, you know, so many people want to put faith and science at odds and at war with each other. But let me tell you a quote by one of the most well-respected men to ever live, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Listen to what he said. He said, science investigates, religion interprets Science gives man knowledge, which is power, but religion gives man wisdom, which is control. Science deals mainly with facts. Religion deals mainly with values. The two are not rivals. They're complementary. That's powerful, church. Science and religion, they are not rivals. They are complementary. By the way, have you ever heard people that just are convinced that science and religion are at odds, and they'll say, well, I've got to be backed by the science. Like about four and a half of you? Okay. (laughs) So for the rest of you, trust, there are people out there, critics, who say, I only believe in science. (laughs) Okay, well, do you know, do you know one of the most simplistic definitions of science? You ready? Man's interpretation of data. I'm gonna say it again to this side of the room. Science, (laughs) high-level definition is man's Interpretation of data. Thank God men never misinterpret anything, right? (laughs) And again, like, don't email me. I'm not trying to say science is not important. I'm not saying higher education doesn't have its place. I'm just saying, uh, before you just take science as an ironclad, you might want to think about it just for a moment because time and time again, people have criticized the word of God in the name of science and over millennia, They've been proven to be wrong. That's right. That's right. I'm going to give you a few examples. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Just turn there with me, and if you're slow flipping, you can look on the screen. And if you have a hard time finding Genesis 1-1, I can't help you. Okay, because that's in the very beginning, all right? Trying to keep it easy on you. Genesis 1-1. <laughs> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. 
under the overarching point that the Bible is scientifically reliable, I want you to take note of this. The Bible declared that the universe had a beginning. Tell your neighbor, the one you've been ignoring, say the universe had a beginning. (laughs) You know, because at church, we always say the one neighbor we talk to the whole time, I'm going to make you talk to the other one. All right. The universe had the beginning, had a beginning. Now, listen, we hear that today in 2024 and we're like, uh, yeah, this is what you came here to tell me. Uh, yeah, but slow down my friend, because it was not until the 1920s, up until the 1920s, scientists believed that the universe had always existed. They believed that its origin was preeminent. They believed that the universe was eternal. Until 1920, the most brilliant academics, the most brilliant scientists to walk the earth, they scoffed the account of Genesis. They mocked it. They said, everybody knows that the universe is eternal. It has always been. That's what science said, causing many in that era to even doubt the story of the word of God and the account of Genesis. But in 1929, An astronomer by the name of Edwin Hubble observed the universe expanding. He observed for the very first time galaxies in motion, moving apart, and they dubbed it Hubble's Law. This revolutionized astronomy because as they observed the galaxies and solar systems moving away from each other, they came to the conclusion that if you rewound the clock, you would see that they all came back and started at one place. Hubble proposed, and now it is universally accepted across all scientific communities that the universe, in fact, had a beginning. The Bible predated that conclusion by 3,300 years. No, I'm serious. But people want to convince you that you're a Neanderthal for believing the Bible. I'm just preaching. (laughs) Have you ever paused to realize that Genesis, written in 1400 BC, written by Moses, who was a shepherd? How could a shepherd... How could he have known without the technology to tell him? How could he have known unless it be inspired by God? Also talking about creation and the beginning. You know, a lot of people use the Big Bang Theory. People in my church have said, well, you know, uh, I don't believe in intelligent design or God because of the Big Bang Theory. Okay, flag on the play, time out. Okay, I like football if you can't tell. So... Do you realize that the Big Bang Theory was proposed by a Roman Catholic priest in Belgium, not attempting to disprove God, but merely attempting to explain how God unfolded the universe into motion? The Big Bang Theory does not oppose God. It was his attempt to merely explain how God set everything into motion. It's profound. It doesn't disprove God at all. Also, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. I'm going to rapid fire really quickly. Um, In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22, the Bible says that the earth is a sphere. 
Isaiah 40, 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. The prophet Isaiah wrote these words in 700 BC. The Bible predated Greek philosophers by hundreds and hundreds of years. The earth could not be scientifically proven to be a circle until Magellan circumnavigated the earth in its oceans in the 1500s. Again, the Bible got it right by over 2,200 years. Isn't that beautiful? Is this encouraging anybody? Am I boring you? I hope I'm not boring. I hope I'm excited. I hope this is exciting. Pastor Taylor told me, come preach about the word. And I got excited. I got excited. I was like, really? That's okay. Yes. Job 26, seven. This one makes me want to take a lap in church. Listen to this. Job 26, seven. It says that he stretches out the North over the empty place and hangs the earth upon nothing. Woo. That's powerful. The book of Job chronologically is the oldest book in the Bible. The very first one. And remember, this is written in the same era that the Hindus believed the earth was on an elephant's shoulders or a turtle's tortoise shell. Okay? And here he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that the earth is suspended from nothing. This is profound. All right? And again, scientists could not prove this until 1650 AD. The Bible predated philosophers again by over 3,000 years. How could ancient prophets, shepherds have known unless it'd be inspired by God? Another thing I want to show you that I think is remarkable is found in Psalm 8.8. Psalm 8.8. It says that the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. Tell your neighbor, the paths of the sea. This scripture was actually mocked and ridiculed for millennia. And in the 1800s, a man by the name of Matthew Murray became the father of oceanography. This is a true story. This is amazing. Matthew Murray while reading Psalm the eighth chapter, said, if God said it, that there are paths in the ocean, then I'm going to find them. That's how much faith he had in the Bible. All right? He went on to discover the warm and cold currents that wrapped themselves around the earth's oceans. And still to this day, merchant vessels and naval vessels from every civilized nation on earth understand that there really are paths in the sea that they can ride and and make up time following the currents of the ocean. There are paths in the sea written by David the psalmist in the eighth chapter. The Bible is a miracle, I'm trying to tell you. It's the word of God. It's that firm foundation. It's that rock on which I stand. The world doesn't know. Listen, the Bible puts life into context unlike anything ever, ever could. Without the word of God and the rock of our foundation, you're left to your opinion. God have mercy. You got time for one more fun one about science? Am I boring you? Okay. I'm having fun. I'm having fun. 
Um, in Leviticus chapter 15, I know how much y'all read Leviticus. <laughs> don't, even, don't even try to act like you've been reading Leviticus. All right, maybe you have because you just read the whole Bible, which was amazing, by the way. Amazing. In Leviticus, do you realize that the Bible told them that if you touch any unclean thing, that you are to run your hands under running water? Like, I know that sounds like common sense to me and you, but as late as the American Civil War, they still didn't understand. How many of you know a little bit of your history, right? They're like, use some utensils on this guy and jump right over to this guy. Nobody washed anything, all right? It was not until the 1870s that the, the medical community realized that the proper protocol for being exposed to unclean things is to run your hands under running water. <laughs> the Bible, by the way, told us that 3,000 years ago. <laughs> that was just for fun. That was just for fun. I, I wasn't going to do that unless I had time. So not only is the Bible a miracle, not only was it divinely inspired and preserved, not only is it scientifically reliable, but it is also historically accurate as well. And, and church, by the way, I'm just giving you like high level. I'm just glancing this stuff. We could be here all day. You could do a whole series on just each one of these things. But do you realize that the Assyrian Empire was lost in the sands of history? And every well-known archaeologist on earth for many decades said that the Bible was, was, was making this civilization up. That this was not a true, actual civilization because if something of this size and grandeur were to have existed in the ancient world, surely we would have found archaeological evidence Critics mocked the Bible for its account of the Assyrian Empire. But in 1842, a French archaeologist by the name of Paul Emily Boda uncovered one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time when he unearthed the Assyrian Empire in modern-day Iraq. And the only historical record of this empire that existed was the Bible. The only one. Again, the scripture predated archaeologists by 2,500 years. The same is also true about the Hittite empire as well. Moving on, next major point, the Bible is also prophetically reliable, prophetically accurate. Only God knows the future. The Bible contains literally hundreds of prophecies that many of which have been fulfilled meticulously with precision even in our lifetime. Of all the holy books in the world, the Bible is the only one that contains accurate, predictive prophecy because only God knows the future and has the power to bring it to pass. Just one, just really quickly, I'm just going to touch on it really fast. It's found in Isaiah 66, verse 7. This is about a nation being born in a day. I want you to listen to this. Remember, remember Isaiah was written 700 to 750 B.C., before Christ, Listen to this. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. I want you to pay very close attention to this. This depicts... This is a biblical prophecy in Isaiah that depicts a nation 
not just any nation, the nation of Zion, which is God's people, being born in one day without bloodshed, without additional war or violence in one day before she even experiences the birth pains, the child will arrive. At midnight on May 14, 1948, the state of Israel officially became a nation at the termination of the British mandate in Palestine on May 14, 1948. And a nation was born in one day. British troops dispersed and the first Jewish state was born in literally 2,000 years in one day. Can we give God praise for his word? That's a miracle. It's a miracle. The scripture went on to prophesy a virgin would give birth and his name will be called Emmanuel and he will save his people from his sins. Scripture also prophesied in the book of Zechariah that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. What was prophesied in Zechariah is revealed in the gospel of Matthew chapter 27. The prophet Isaiah went on to prophesy that the Messiah of the world would come into the very world that he was created. He would be despised and rejected by the very men that he came to save. This is Isaiah 53, verse 3. If man had wrote the Bible, would we not have embellished it and made men the hero? If men wrote the Bible, why would we why would it contradict the very carnal impulses of the flesh? The Bible is the book of, a spirit, of the spirit that convicts, that reveals, that transforms. The hero of the Bible is not you and I. The hero of the Bible is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what man would write a story about a fictitious Messiah that would be brutalized and put to death like a criminal on a cross. Alvin Plantega, one of the great philosophers, Christian philosophers, he's quoted as saying the Bible and the gospel specifically is not just the greatest message ever told, it is the greatest message that ever could be told. There is no plot, there is no story that could ever be concocted any greater than a God who would give life to creation. They would be created in his image and likeness, rebel against him, and yet God would have a love for them and send his only son into the world to redeem it. What greater love is there than this, than a man who would lay down his life for his friends? There is no greater love than this. I'm almost done. Y'all hanging in there? The next major point, and if you're taking notes, I would really encourage you to write this down. Jesus endorsed the Bible. Jesus endorsed the Old Testament. He preached from it. He taught from it. Not as a suggestion, but as the authoritative word of God. John 5.39, listen to this. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Oh, church, this is powerful. This is profound. This is one of the things that got him crucified, by the way. 
He said, you are searching for the scripture. You're searching through the law. You're trying to make yourself right with God by obeying every letter of the law. But the truth is, you will not be made righteous and find eternal life through the law. No, the law, Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, they speak of me. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. I'm the one that can do what the law is powerless to do. The law cannot save you, only the Son of God in his precious blood. I want you to hear me loud and clear today, and I want you to be warned of false teachers in the earth today that have a low view of Scripture, yet claim to have an accurate view of Jesus. There are many in our world, in in South Carolina, they're certainly in Charlotte, I can tell you, that they treat the Bible like a suggestion. They minimize the scripture, yet they claim to exalt Jesus. You cannot have an accurate view of Jesus with a low view of scripture. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is his word. If you claim to have a low view of the Bible, but an accurate view of Jesus, then you are serving a different Jesus. I've heard people say, I've had people with the audacity to look me in the eye and say, well, you know, Jesus never taught on these specific sins. So since he was silent on it, I'm going to go ahead on and do it. Flag on the plate. We're going to throw the flag. If we ran out of flags, we'll throw the hat down. You know, the refs, when they run out of flags, throw the hat. Okay? (laughs) Jesus taught the Old Testament. He didn't apologize for it. He didn't say, well, you know, know, I I like numbers, but Leviticus, you can skip that. No, no, no. He taught every sermon he preached was rooted in the Old Testament, the Word of God. He validated the Old Testament as the word of God. And by the way, the Old Testament talks about a whole lot of sins. Don't be mocked. God will not be mocked. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's time to submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus and submit ourselves to his word. You know what I tell my church? If you and the Bible disagree, you're wrong. (laughs) Oh, they... some. Don't tell them this. But some of my, my staff, they keep track of how many people get leave my sermons. You know what I mean? They're like, oh, you only had three leave today, Pastor. I'm like, that's not my, I'm not trying to offend people. But the truth is offensive. It's offensive. And one last thing, and I mean it this time, and if the band wants to come and help me, if the band starts playing, I'll know to stop talking. Y'all good? Man, I love you guys. Man, I love you. Man, my church is like looking at the clock. They're like, like I'm trying to get out. Y'all like you guys. Um, well, okay then, thanks to you. If you I'm going I'm to say one more thing before I say the last thing. <laughs> and if you get mad, just blame somebody in this section right here. Just blame somebody in this section. I love you. Um, you, know, you know, when I said that Jesus is the word, I meant it. In fact, you know, in every book of the Bible, you can see the gospel. In the book of Genesis, he's the light of the world. In the Exodus, he is the Passover lamb without spot or blemish. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Deuteronomy, he is 
Moses, our deliverer. In Joshua, he is the captain of the Lord's host. In Judges, they were, you, by the way, Judges is a wild book. It's rated R. And critics of our faith, y'all read that, didn't you? Just, you're like, is this really in the Bible? So can I talk about Judges just for two seconds? Somebody's like, please, please tell us. Okay, so, you know, critics of our faith, and I'm sure you've heard this, critics of our faith, they'll flip through the book of Judges and they'll go, oh, if that's the kind of God you serve, I want nothing to do with him. You ever heard that? Okay, now you know what I tell I say, hey, just hang with me on that thought right there. Because the book of Judges is 21 chapters of madness. It's rated R. It's a little violent, a little promiscuous. They don't teach it in Sunday school for a reason. <laughs> Some of y'all just found out Judges was in the Bible when you read through it. All right. But I want you, but I'm being serious though. You know, critics of our faith, they point to judges and they say, if that's the kind of God you serve, I want nothing to do with him at all. But you know what? You're completely missing the whole premise of the book of Judges. You know what Judges is about? It says it right there in the very last verse. It says, in this day in Israel, they lived without a king. And so every man did what seemed right in his own eyes. Judges 21 chapters is a picture of what life digresses to when you live as the Lord of your own life. Judges is violent, it's promiscuous, it's rated R because it's the picture of what happens when we reign as the God of our own life. When Israel rejected its king in God, it's theocracy. It digressed to chaos and dysfunction. And the same is true in your life and mine today. Millennia later, if we fail to submit to Christ as King, as Lord reigning in our life, if we do what seems right in our own eyes, the result is chaos and dysfunction and disorder. The whole point of Judges is you need Jesus to reign as the king of your life. And let me say this. Everybody in America wants to be forgiven of our sins. Everybody in America wants forgiveness. They want Jesus as savior, but very few want him as the Lord of their life. Let me tell you today, friend, he's not just savior. He is Lord and savior. Oh, I'm talking to you now. You see, it's no longer I who live, but now Christ who lives in me. You can't say what you want to say. You can't do what you want to do. You can't think what you want to think. You died in the waters of baptism. Your life died, and now it is Christ who lives in you. I wonder, is Jesus reigning as the Lord of your life? Or are you still the king and God of your own soul? Because so long as you reign on the throne of your heart, the result will be like judges. Chaos and dysfunction. Tell your neighbor, you need Jesus. <laughs> I'm really closing now. Husbands, be careful now. Don't be safe. You made it to 2024. I want you to see it through, okay? I'm closing now, for real. The band wants to help me close. I'm really closing here. Um, my, I'm gonna leave you with this thought. 
I know we talked about it's divinely inspired. I know we talked about it's divinely preserved. We talked about it's scientific and historical and prophetic reliability. We talked about that it's about Jesus. But I also want you to know one more thing. The Bible is a miracle and can be trusted because it transforms lives like nothing else ever could. And you can argue with my theology and you can argue with my doctrine, but you can't argue with a changed life. You can't argue with a drug addict who's now free. You can't, you can't argue with a broken marriage that's now restored. You can't argue with a person who is dead in their sin and now alive unto God. Our testimony is one of the most powerful witnesses to the power of the Bible and the word of God that there is. Revelation says we overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. The Bible changes lives. It's changed my life forever. It can change yours too. All over this room, I want you to pray with me. Those of you watching online, I want you to agree with me in prayer. Listen, if you're still the God of your own life, you need to repent today. Turn to Jesus. If your life is built on your opinion or anything other than the word of God, you need to repent and turn to him today. Not only can his word be trusted, but he can be trusted. So I want you to pray sincerely with me all over this place. Father, we come to you tonight in the mighty name of Jesus and we repent of our sin. We repent, Lord, for living as the king of our own life. We repent for lust, pride, greed, and selfish ambition that has reigned in our hearts. We repent tonight for loving the things created more than the creator himself. Tonight, we repent and turn our back to our old way of thinking and living, and we set our face towards the cross of Calvary. We're thankful that 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life, opened the blind eyes, caused the deaf to hear and the lame to walk. He died on the cross in my place. He who knew no sin became my sin, that I might be called the righteousness of God in him. His body was buried, and on that third day, he rose from the grave. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. No one else can save. Lord, save my soul. Be the Lord of my life. Change my heart and desires, and help me to follow you and serve you all the days of my life. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. If you prayed that with me today for the first time, or you prayed that prayer as a recommitment of your faith in Jesus. Maybe you're a prodigal son, a prodigal daughter coming back to the Lord tonight. You're not here by accident or coincidence. God loves you. He's been drawing you by his spirit and he wants to save your soul and transform your life. The truth is praying that prayer is the beginning, but we must confess him as the Lord of our life. Christianity is not a secret faith, it's a public faith. So in just a second, I'm going to count to three. I'm going to count to three. And if you prayed that prayer with me today for the first time or as a recommitment of your faith, I want you to stand in this room at the count of three boldly with every eye open, every person looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I'm giving you an opportunity to stand publicly and say, I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ. 
I'm not going to live as the God of my own life. He is going to reign in my life. Scripture says, if you acknowledge him on earth, he will acknowledge you in heaven. But if you are ashamed of him on earth, he'll be ashamed of you in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. It's a public faith. You cannot be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. If that's you today and you need to publicly acknowledge Jesus as the Lord of your life, I want you to stand boldly now. One, two, three. My goodness. I see you. I see all of you standing today. It's powerful. I see you. I see you. I see you guys right there. I see all of you. My goodness. Come on, somebody, and give the Lord praise. Those of you, it's amazing. It's amazing. Those of you who are standing, those of you who are standing, if you would just remain standing for one moment, everybody stretch your hands and let's pray towards these precious people right now. Father, we thank you for the demonstration of faith in these precious lives. It takes humility, it takes courage, and it takes faith to stand publicly in a room like this. I pray, Lord, that what has begun today, that it would bear much fruit. You would be the author and the finisher of their faith. No weapon formed against them would ever prosper. You would keep them and use them in a light to be a light in this dark and perverse world. Lord Jesus, may they find community in this house. May they grow and may they bear much fruit all the days of their life. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for having me. It's been an honor.